2021 legislative coverage on Utah Public Radio is supported by Southern Utah University, with online programs designed to provide flexibility and affordability, helping accelerate the path to professional achievement with a variety of degree options. Information available at suu.edu online. 2021 legislative coverage is also supported by the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The 2021 session of the Utah legislature ended on Friday, and today we're recapping the session. We'll be talking a little bit later with the House Executive Appropriations Chair, Representative Brad Last, Republican from Hurricane, Senate Minority Whip, Senator Luz Escamilla, Democrat from Salt Lake City, and Senate Majority Whip, Senator Ann Milner, Republican from Ogden. We'll be talking about COVID-19 restrictions, police reform, the budget, homelessness, and much more. And we'd love to get your question or comment to our legislators you can do that by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. What's top of your mind? What's most important to you as we look back on the session and work still left to be done? Uh, we begin with Representative Angela Romero, a Democrat from Salt Lake City. We're talking right now with Representative Angela Romero. Uh, so just overall, uh, as the session has ended now, uh, what's top of mind for you? What's the biggest thing you uh, think the legislature accomplished? Well, uh, funding education is huge, but for me, because I represent the city, um, the money we put into affordable housing and homelessness gives me hope. Uh, so tell us about that. Uh, there was, uh, you know, a fair amount of money uh, put into this. What what will uh, what will this do? Well, hopefully um, we will be able to provide more services and more housing for individuals. I know Salt Lake City in particular has been working with the legislature to get more resources, especially for some of our individuals who are experiencing homelessness who um, don't have shelter right now. And so that was a huge component for me. But um, more importantly, this all ties in together when you talk about people experiencing homelessness when you talk about a quality of education, when you talk about affordable housing, and Senator Escamilla also ran a, a bill addressing food insecurity, they all intertwine. And so you can't address one without addressing an, another particular issue because they, they all impact each other. The legislature, surprisingly, I guess surprisingly to me, in the middle of a, a pandemic, had uh, you know had a bit of money. There was... You know, um, more than perhaps uh, some previous uh, sessions. Do you think enough of that went to some of these areas that uh, you feel it should have gone to? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I always think that we can do more. Um, you know, I, I am a Democrat, and, and the social safety net is really, really important to me. But I feel like it's a starting point. I, I really feel like we had some on, honest conversations. And where I feel like we can have more conversations is on police reform. I, I saw a bit of pushback in the Senate on some of the bills that were going forward, and so it'll be interesting to see where we um, land this upcoming session, what we do in the interim as we move forward. Another thing that I'm proud of um, that I've been working on for years is sexual assault and human trafficking and domestic violence, and myself and Representative Dan Johnson were able to secure it was about $3.2 million in TANF funding to address um, specifically sexual um, assault and domestic violence and find some more money for to help some of our shelters, but also do that preventative education piece. And a lot of times we talk about education, we talk about homelessness, and these are all critical pieces, but we can't forget about um, sexual assault and domestic violence, especially when we're in a pandemic and people are in already in vulnerable positions. And so I wanted to make sure we, we didn't forget about some of our most vulnerable members in our community and um, was happy to see my colleagues uh, renew the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women Task Force that I um, uh, legislation I ran last session, but we weren't really able to um, do much because of COVID. So I'm hoping this summer to travel the state of Utah to meet with our tribal leaders 
to really get a grip on on what's going on there as well. Uh, so tell me a bit more about that. Uh, so you'll be traveling around, um, what, getting input, the uh, and, the, yes. and then what's yes, input? Yeah, and then what's the what, what's next uh, after that? What, what in your hopes, I guess. My my hopes is to be able to bring a, a plan back to the to my colleagues to talk about policy and what are better ways in which we, as the state of Utah, can work with the federal government, can work with our our county and and you know our local municipalities to address this issue, and also with our tribal communities and how, you know where are those lines blurred when we're talking about murder and missing Indigenous women, especially when we're talking about someone who resides on a reservation versus someone who doesn't. I think when we talk about um, Indigenous communities, I'm, I'm also Indigenous, I'm Mexican-American and Indigenous, um, majority of us live in an urban setting. So I think there's a lot of, um, of, of myths out there about who we are, but there is definitely, from my perspective, an epidemic when it comes to um, our Indigenous people and, and how they're valued. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to... Um, you know, travel the state, meet with our tribal community members, and let them tell their stories. I think a lot of times people just want to be heard, and so we're going to start with that piece, but we're going to look at what other um, preventative measures do we need to do and how can we work better with our different um, levels of government to truly address this issue. And we're, we're not going to solve it overnight, but um, first by listening and hearing stories and believing people, that's kind of our first step. We We were able to... Um, re- renew the task force, and we have a, an end date of um, 2023, and so that gives us a couple of years to put some stuff together to bring forward to um, the full legislature, and that will be myself and Senator Hinkins. So this is definitely a bi- bipartisan issue. It's not just um, um, a Democratic issue. Um, all my colleagues, whether we're Republican or Democrat, realize that there's there's an issue here, and we want to definitely address it. I want to talk about uh, domestic violence, sexual assault. Uh, are there, I believe, uh, rates are up, right, during the pandemic? I guess people are yes. are in, in close and, and uh, kind of with each other more. Are there lessons we've learned from this? You know, um, at the education piece is, is critical, but also providing resources for people who um, may be experiencing um, domestic violence in particular, knowing where they can go to get help and services. And another um, issue on this, um, on, when we're talking about sexual assault in particular, is Utah was one of two states that um, doesn't comply with the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And this was one of my bills that kind of just kind of sailed through and, and people didn't really talk about. So um, Utah will no longer be one of two states to not um, participate in and complying with that. And so over the summer, I'll be working with um, corrections and with our community-based organizations that deal with sexual assault and um, our sheriffs to put a plan together so that we're addressing sexual assault in our, um, in our, in our penal system as well. So mm. there's, there's a lot of stuff. There are a lot of moving parts, and a lot of times these issues aren't talked about, again, because we are talking about important issues such as, and everything's important, but when we're talking about homelessness, education, infrastructure, some of these other issues that are really important to me, and I know they're really important to other Utahns, um, at times get kind of lost. And so I I wanted to make sure that we don't forget about um, power and control and why it's so important that we're providing infrastructure and services for people who might be put in that particular position. I'm reading that one of the bills that you sponsored, uh, I guess, died in Senate committee, House Bill 168, which uh, would have limited the sale of do-it-yourself sexual assault test kits. Uh, why do, why were you concerned about this? Well, I'm concerned because of the chain of custody, the chain of evidence. And say somebody doesn't feel comfortable going to an emergency room or, or seeing a sane nurse, and they do one of these do-it-yourself home sexual assault kits, they, the only reason you would use us would would even um, be put in that situation is you want to use that for evidence to prosecute your perpetrator. And so, for me, um, I'll continue to battle this at a federal level, federal level, and and see if we can get them banned there. But I'm also talking to my colleagues across the country to see if they'll run similar legislation because 
this gives victims false hope, and someone's making money off of other people's pain. And I just think it's ridiculous. That's the best thing I can word I can think of that I can share on public radio that somebody would make money off of somebody else's pain and then that person thinking that well I can do it myself so I don't have to do these other take these other steps and there just might be things missing that they don't capture um sexual assault is violent and it's horrific and um a do-it-yourself sexual assault kit um can't be used in a court of law and there are other things that we want to make sure survivors are getting if they've ever experienced sexual assault, like um, counseling and um, a health checkup, because it's not just the trauma of sexual assault. There are other things that can happen there. And making sure that that kit is um, able to be used if, you know, the system is broken when it comes to sexual assault. And the sexual assault kit isn't the only answer, but if it's going to be used, we want to make sure that it, it follows that chain of custody and a do-it-yourself home sexual assault kit um, doesn't meet that standard. In Utah, because of my bill HB 200, we track every sexual assault kit um, when somebody um, visits a same nurse. And if that person chooses to um, prosecute their or go after their perpetrator, there, there's a chain of command there. It's documented that a survivor can track their sexual assault kit. And in Utah, Anyone who's been a victim of sexual assault can get a free um, sexual assault examination. They're not charged for it. And so there's just huge problems with these do-it-yourself um, home um, rape kits. And I'll continue to work on this issue here in Utah, but also at a, a national front. I want to shut them down. Oh, we're coming down to the end of time we have together, but I definitely want to talk about police reform. You ran several bills, uh, several of which I think passed. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah. tell us about some of these bills which uh, which passed, and and then I I assume you you probably feel like there's more to do. Definitely more to do. Um, over the the summer, um, starting in May, I was um, contacted by uh, Chief Brian Red, who works for Commissioner the Commissioner of the Department of Public um, Safety, and Commissioner Anderson. And he reached out to me and and the members of what we call the Quad Caucus. So those were the ethnic minority um, um, representatives and senators up at the Capitol. And we worked with them and and with the executive branch and with our legislative colleagues and put together a group of people to look at what are some um, things that we could do in regards to police reform. And um, three of those bills were were my bills, which requires um, de-escalation, Training as part of um, law enforcement officers are required to do 40 hours of training. And so I wanted to make sure when we were um, doing that training, um, would I like to see more? Definitely. But I wanted to start out in in intervals because not everyone in the legislature thinks the same. And and I think a lot of times people, um, when we're we're talking about the city and we're talking about small town Utah, um, but I think consistency is, is critical. And so we started with the de-escalation training and this uh, crisis intervention training. And so all law enforcement um, officers will re- require to do that at least 16 hours yearly, and they'll have to turn that into post. The other um, big major concern for us was um, we have a, a database, and uh, as media was calling about use of force, um, there was really no way to track that. And so one of my bills mandated that all um, use of force be uploaded uploaded into this database so that we can collect the data. And then I, finally, I had the weapon pointing bill. Most law enforcement agencies already do this, but again, I wanted to make it consistent. And although these were small, small bills, they, they will um, help us collect the data and the information we need so that when we're training our peace officers, we're doing it correctly. What's, uh, so pointing ahead against the next session, or uh, let me phrase it this way, uh, uh, end game in a, a perfect world, what, 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 would the, what would the one step that you'd like to take, have the legislature uh, take on police reform? You know, I, I think it's, uh, of course, holding um, our peace officers accountable, but also letting them, you know, a lot of people ask me if I want to defund the police, and, and I don't, but I, I the the huge issue for me and as being a person who um, is a person of color who um, had positive and negative experiences with law enforcement and, and seeing how it's impacted my own family 
I want to make sure that line of communication is there and that we really do address systemic racism. And we can't just do that with police reform. We have to do that through all institutions. And I saw put the pushback came from, you know, from the Senate, because there are a lot of people who still don't believe that um, systemic racism is real. And, you know, there's a lot of education to do. And, and people ask me all the time, well, are your colleagues racist? And I'm like, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I think a lot of times um, we don't see things if we've never been impacted by them. And so a lot of what we do as, as um, legislators of color is educating our colleagues and sharing our experiences and, and um, bringing a different perspective to the table. And so in order to address police reform and other structural issues, we, we have to really look at how systemic racism plays a role in our institutions here in Utah. And um, that's not going to happen overnight. Well, we very much appreciate you getting your perspective. Representative Angela Romero uh, from Salt Lake City, uh, thanks so much for uh, talking to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, coming up, we will uh, have a conversation, joint conversation with uh, Representative Brad Last, a Republican from Hurricane, uh, Senator Les, uh, Luz Escamilla, Democrat from Salt Lake City, and um, Senator Ann Milner, Republican from Ogden. Uh, we'd love to uh, pose question or comments to the legislators, and we have a couple have come in so far. We'd love to get yours. Upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com is the way to get your question or comment to our legislators. Our thanks to uh, Representative Angela Romero. We recorded that conversation on Saturday. We'll have much more coming up following this break. Utah 2021 legislative coverage is made possible by USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. And legislative coverage is also supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. So they come now, hear them? Bowling alleys, hair salons seem to be renting out UTVs now. And it was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh my goodness. I lost count at 50. I'm John Kovash. And I'm Josie Kovash. We're the producers of Moab, the undisputed motorhead capital of the West. Tune in to UPR Friday at 10 a.m. It's just been a depressing situation here. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. The 2021 session of the Utah Legislature ended on Friday. And today we're recapping the session with several legislators, and you can get your questions or comments to them by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Anything that you'd like to, uh, to talk about. Uh, so we bring in uh, Representative Brad Last, who is a Republican from Hurricane and is the House Executive Appropriations Chair. Representative Last, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Tom. Good to have you with us. Uh, Senator Luce Escamilla, Democrat from Salt Lake City, who's the Senate Minority Whip, uh, is joining us. Senator Escamilla, thank you. Thank you, Tom. And uh, the Senate Majority Whip, uh, Senator Ann Milner, Republican from Ogden, is with us. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Good Good morning. Let me start with Representative Last. I'll go around the panel just uh, to start. What uh, What stood out to you, Representative Last? What's, what's top of your mind coming off this session? Well, I'm the budget chair on the House side, so uh, for me it's all about the money, and uh, this was a very unusual year. Uh, as we ended the session last year, of course, uh, we knew that something was coming. We knew the COVID was upon us, but we really didn't know what the impact would be, and uh, through several special sessions, we cut our budgets and really tried to get ready for uh, crisis, and as it turned out, the economy did much better than we thought. So we ended up in this session, in this session, with a lot more money than we anticipated, and we were able to do some uh, really uh, unusual things for our legislature. And that was uh, primarily we spent 
a lot of a lot of the cash that we had on infrastructure over a billion dollars and that was that was amazing that we were able to do that given the given the overall situation with the covid pandemic uh, to follow up um, I'm sure you get projections right at the legislature what what does the economy look like going forward well we think it's pretty bright for Utah especially but uh, the the big concern that we have is that it appears that there's a a lot of federal money uh, on the horizon, and strangely enough, that creates a lot of challenges for us. And you're hearing concerns about inflation uh, and and other issues related to all of this debt that the federal government uh, is taking on. So I'm quite sure that we will be back in some special sessions to deal with the federal money and other issues, just like we were this year. Um, but overall, I think uh, I think I think the future looks very bright for Utah. Uh, Senator Escamilla, what's uh, top of mind uh, for you coming out of the session? Um, definitely the budget, and you know we um, as explained by uh, the good representative, we we got an, an interesting year, very different from what we've seen before. A lot of it is that federal money, and that creates um, definitely a challenge on how to make sure we're responsibly and fiscally responsibly using those funds. Education came out as a winner, and that's great. I think that's uh, something that our not only our, our teachers and professionals, administrators in the education field, but our children and our families need to know that education is a top priority for the legislature, and that reflected well in the way we spent money on education this year. Healthcare, um, still more to come. I, I think we still lack more resources and services in uh, the area of social services. So a big concern. I serve in that community. I've been there for 13 years, and I, I have a lot of concerns there. And it worries me because of the pandemic, right? We're still in the middle of COVID-19, and I, I, we need to bring more infrastructure to keep those um, uh, the, the safety net ready for what's coming, especially um, looking towards a recession in the future as well. So those are some things. Uh, we had a lot of police reform uh, issues that came up and, and were addressed uh, in a systemic way. It's exciting to see a lot of police reform issues and law enforcement engaged in all the different levels. Medical cannabis, uh, we had, we're still cleaning and, and perfecting our, our program. It's not perfect, it's new. And uh, Senator Victor and myself work in, with the two biggest bills we pass on medical cannabis, which is a big deal as well for our session, this session. So those are some of the pieces I will, uh, I will mention. Uh, Senator Milner, what about you, top of mind, coming out of the session? Well, certainly education uh, was first and foremost, I think. Um, being able to put $400 million in education to make sure that we, even during a pandemic and what we thought was going to be uh, very difficult times, uh, we prioritized education and uh, we were able to put $400 million in it. So I think that's extremely important. In addition to that, um, I just a couple of things we haven't talked about is um, we've had probably part of it because of the pandemic, 50, uh, a structural imbalance in our Medicaid program, and we put $58 million of ongoing money into our Medicaid program. That's above the additional um sales tax that was put in as a part of that initiative, but um, we found that that didn't really cover all the costs, and so we made a major investment in Medicaid as well. And then uh, what we haven't talked about is tax cuts. So we made major investments, I think, in education and infrastructure and affordable housing, um, really making sure we're putting our state in the right place for the decade ahead, but at the same time, we did a tax cut in Social Security and military retirement and for those with dependent children that I think those who are most impacted um, will be getting a tax cut in this um, upcoming year. So I, I think that's a really important policy piece that we put in place at the same time. I want to talk about uh, COVID-19. Uh, we've been dealing with this for a year. We're, we're weary, I think. Uh, vaccine is giving us hope, right? So, Representative Last, uh, uh, this has been a kind of a different session, right? A lot of it, or all of it, virtual, I think, right? Um, yeah, well, 
we most of us were there. Of course, uh, okay. I'm not sure about the Senate, but in the House, we had uh, we had a couple of members that were virtual for the entire session. Um, but it was kind of amazing. Uh, the, the the Capitol itself was very quiet, which is unusual. Usually, you've got bands and and uh, all kinds of different things. Some protests and some people up there just celebrating one thing or another. Uh, we usually have people in the rotunda almost every day with different presentations and and just an opportunity to showcase what they're doing, the universities and and di- different state departments and and so forth. Uh, it was very quiet that way. Uh, but all of our meetings did give citizens of Utah the opportunity to uh, to view the meetings online uh, and participate, and that's something that we've never done before. They could they could see the meetings or they could at least hear the meetings, but they couldn't necessarily participate. But uh, I hope that that gave a lot of people opportunities that didn't have them before. I was really impressed with the IT staff at the Capitol. Uh, I would, things were not necessarily seamless, but they worked relatively well, and the committee chairs and the speaker and the president, I mean, I think everybody got pretty familiar with the technology by the time the session ended, or, or even in the first few weeks, and so uh, people were able to, to participate, even though they couldn't be at the Capitol. So uh, that was very unusual, but uh, I think it, it it probably sets the trend for the future, quite honestly. I think uh, giving people the opportunity to participate from miles away, uh, my district is 300 miles away, some of it, and uh, I think it's great that people can participate that way. So that was something that was very unusual, but turned out quite well. I'd like to ask everybody on the panel, I'll start with you, Representative Last. Uh, what do you think about the, uh, the, the the bill, which uh, spelled out a timeline to end the pandemic-related uh, restrictions? Well, um, you know, that's something that the citizens were kind of looking for, was uh, a way, uh, I guess, a light at the end of the tunnel. I, I, obviously, things are getting better. Uh, the numbers of uh, COVID cases are way down. Hospitalizations are down. And... Uh, I think one of the thing, one of the efforts that the legislature made was to try and try and give people a, a bit more hope that we will be out of this at some point in time. And uh, you know, I think what we ended up with was was okay. I mean, it's uh, we have a timeline, but we also have some conditions that have to be met, and and I think that's a pretty reasonable way to go about it. Senator Escamilla, what uh, I guess overall, just uh, this session and regard with regard to COVID nineteen, then specifically this. Uh, uh, spelling out a timeline to end uh, Utah's pandemic-related uh, restrictions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it worries me, um, and I certainly I oppose that piece of legislation. I think we did really well with SB 195, which uh, we worked for six months trying to bring a balance in the process between the executive branch and legislative branch on this type of emergencies, which are very unusual, right? And hopefully we don't get to see this one, just something like this ever again, but... I'm sure it will happen, but the idea that we have a process and a system, we put that with SB 195. This other piece of legislation, I, I don't think that's the right approach. It worries me that we will, instead of help, and put us in a more difficult place. So, you know, we I, I hope that we, we all of those pieces and safeguards are met and, and, and are done in a, in a way that makes sense. I think SB 195 was the real, um, you know, process and, and checks and balances that we needed because there were a lot of concerns and constituents wanted to make sure that there was more transparency in that process. And I, I believe SB 195 was the answer, not this last bill that had passed on the last day of the session. Mm. Uh, Senator Milner, what uh, what are your thoughts just overall on COVID-19 uh, at the legislature and, and this timeline? So we're saving um, cases go down. We're seeing hospitalization go down. And clearly we've seen a decrease in death, um, in particular getting our older um, population vaccinated combined, who we know are the, have been the most vulnerable along with those with comorbidities. Um, I think we've made significant progress. And I think um, some of our counties are actually starting to move into what would be moderate status. 
Um, so as we move forward, I think it makes some sense to establish criteria um, that will allow us to move um, to the, back to the moderate and, um, and be able, through the moderate and mild, what we are actually going to allow is local counties to be making more decisions that really can respond to the conditions in their counties versus a statewide approach. And I, I think that we need to be able to have that flexibility because depending on the availability of vaccines and conditions in that county, et cetera, things can change. And I believe that local government can make those calls. Let's take a break now, and when we come back, I will uh, jump into our listeners' questions for our legislators, and you can get your question or comment to, to our legislators right now to, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking with uh, Representative Brad Last, Republican from Hurricane. He is uh, the House Executive Appropriations Chair. Uh, we're talking with Senator Luce Escamilla, Democrat from Salt Lake City, the Senate Majority Whip, and uh, Senator Ann Milner, Republican from Ogden, who's the Senate Majority Whip, and uh, hope to have your question or comment uh, when we come back from this break. Utah legislative coverage on UPR is made possible by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.com. And 2021 legislative coverage is also supported by Southern Utah University, with online programs designed to provide flexibility and affordability, helping accelerate the path to professional achievement with a variety of degree options. Information available at suu.edu slash online. On the next Radio Lab, co-host Latif Nasser shares his name with exactly one other person. Detainee 244 at Guantanamo Bay. And our Latif spent three years obsessed with finding out how the other Latif ended up there. You're allowed to say you hate America. It's not a crime to say things. Is he the worst of the worst? Or was he just at the wrong place at the wrong time? Join us for the fourth episode in our six-part series, The Other Latif. This morning at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're recapping the 2021 session of the Utah Legislature, which ended on Friday. And uh, we are joined by several legislators. We're joined by Representative Brad Last, Republican from Hurricane, uh, Senator Luz Escamilla, Democrat from Salt Lake City, and uh, Senator Ann Milner, Republican from Ogden. You can get your question or comment to these legislators uh, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Let me just jump in uh, with our first uh, question. This is from Jean. Jean says, asks, recognizing that climate change is the biggest concern facing the state, what did the legislature accomplish to protect Utahns from climate disruption? We'll go in the same order. Representative Last, uh, give you first crack at that question. Uh, sorry, I was I was on mute. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, we, we continue to, to uh, have a lot of conversations about climate change and about air quality in the state of Utah and uh, also about how we can continue to move the economy forward uh, without, you know, without a big cliff. And, and I think that's, you know, that's something that we will continue to discuss. I will, I'll just talk about uh, one issue that... Uh, is a big concern, and that's the inland port that we're going to be developing out by the airport, out by the new prison. One of the, the one of the things that we are are talking about out there is how how can we have all of this big equipment out there and not have an impact on air quality? And uh, one of the things that we did was allocated considerable amount of money to Utah State uh, University for uh, the study of electrification because we, would, we believe that there is a way that we can have these big semi-trucks and maybe the other uh, equipment that moves the containers, uh, they can all be electric. So that's something that we're planning on doing, and we're also allocating quite a bit of money uh, to, the, to the facility itself, to the inland port, when we get ready to build that for some, some form of electrification. Uh, one other thing I will mention is... Uh, 
the front runner. Obviously, cars are, are con- a big contributor to the pollution in the state and the infrastructure that I referred to earlier, the cash that we're spending. Uh, some of that is going to uh, double track the front runner so that we can try and, and have a, a more robust uh, public transportation system between Utah County and Weber County, really. So there's a combination of cash and bonding that we will be doing to, uh, to really improve the front runner uh, by, by doing double tracking. That allows more trains to be traveling uh, back and forth. So there's a couple of ideas right there. All right. Um, Senator Escamilla, I'll, I'll repeat the question. Uh, um, re- recognizing that climate change is the biggest concern facing the state, what did the legislature accomplish to protect Utahns from climate disruption? That's uh, Gene's question. <clears throat> yeah, thank you for that question. And as a, one of the co-chairs for the Cleaner Caucus, is a bipartisan caucus, um, we didn't think we, we were the winners this time, unfortunately. There was not a lot of investment on clean air. And so that creates a little bit of a concern. I do uh, agree that public transportation was a winner. We, uh, As mentioned by uh, the representative left, there was a, a big investment for UPA in continuing to move us to a better um, place in transportation. Um, I, was, I brought actually a resolution that didn't pass, but addressing also funding for uh, rail, for uh, passenger rail. There's a lot of federal money coming in. I think our, our new White House administration is fully committed to big infrastructure when it comes to passenger rail. So we're hoping to have a resolution to bring all the stakeholders together. It didn't succeed, uh, but we we definitely uh, were were lacking on more air monitoring components. There were multiple pieces of legislation that were not funded, that uh, unfortunately. So we will be focusing as cleaner caucus on those bills for next year. We want to make sure we're back into supporting carrot funds, you know, the retrofit and replacement of off-road technology. We want to make sure we're putting all of our infrastructure in a better place. And, you know, as the senator that represents the inland port, um, that continues to be a priority for my district. Uh, we want to see clean infrastructure coming in and um, definitely electrifying as much as we can. It's put us in a better place. But there's, that continues to be a, a very, very um, high priority for my district. You know, we have the worst air quality in the whole state happens to be there. And we're putting <clears throat> potentially thousands of more vehicles and emissions in that area. So that uh, looking forward to see how that investment on infrastructure that was put in uh, in terms of how electrifying both rail and uh, vehicles will look like so we can reduce emissions in that area. Um, Senator Milner, what do you think about this uh, climate change? What did the legislature accomplish to protect Utah from climate disruption? So I'm going to, both uh, Senator Escamilla and Representative Last talked about some investments we made in transit, not only um, thinking about rapid transit, more rapid transit, because that's what double tracking would allow, allow us to do, um, is to be able to get express trains that will make I think people are more likely to ride if they have the opportunity to um, take some express routes that facilitate their access to places. And we're uh, with Utah State, we're doing a lot more work on electrification and really could become a model state for that in the future. But I also think we're taking a planning approach to this. And we set up a new commission called uh, the Commission on Economic Opportunity and as we assembled that commission, which would actually be chaired by the governor of the state of Utah, we pulled in not only um, areas that the departments that are focused on traditionally on economic development and workforce development and education, um, but also our natural resource people, housing, transportation, and so we really do have to build, uh, as we think through the growth in the state, continuing to make sure that we're providing economic opportunity, both in urban and rural Utah. We have to make sure that we're building kind of healthy, resilient ecosystems, which I think allows us um, to take a more integrated approach to planning that takes into account uh, many of the things that we need to do in the state going forward, but realizing anytime we do something one place, oftentimes it has impacts others. And so we're trying to align our work 
and um, to balance that for the future so that 5 and 10 and 15 years down the road, we've been able to make more holistic decisions around many of these issues um, that will position the state uh, for a healthy Utah for the future. If you just joined us, we are recapping the 2021 session of the Utah Legislature. We're welcoming your questions and comments for our panel of legislators. Uh, you can get those uh, to us by email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we are talking with Representative Brad Last, Republican from Hurricane, uh, Senator Luce Escamilla, Democrat from Salt Lake City, and Senator Ann Milner, Republican from Ogden. Next question up uh, comes from Louise. Louise says... Uh, some questions for your legislator guests regarding the newly created Colorado River Commission. First, my concerns, says Louise. This commission will be filled with non-elected individuals who will be making crucially important decisions regarding our most important and most endangered resource, water. How will these folks be held accountable for their decisions to spend tax dollars? Furthermore, this body will be allowed to meet in closed sessions, so Utah sunshine laws don't apply. Again, accountability is a concern. We have the experience of local water conservancy districts operating in the same way and uh, to the detriment of the citizens. Why is competition among the states in the, the, the next section of uh, the, uh, the questions and comments here? Why is competition among the states for the water of the Colorado River considered a zero-sum game when, in fact, the water is owned by all the states working together for its equitable distribution and conservation benefits uh, for all of us? Uh, that's uh, Louise. Uh, Representative Last, uh, your, your thoughts on this newly created Colorado yeah. River Commission? Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a question. Uh, but the Colorado River uh, Authority, as it's, as it's called, uh, is, is a new entity that's in the governor's office. And the reason that it was established was to basically put Utah on par with the other states in terms of protecting our interests in the Colorado River. Um, the Colorado River, of course, and the allocations of water in the Colorado River go back uh, a long, long time. Uh, the compact, which is often referred to, was in the in 1920 or or right about there, and uh, the, the allocations of water refer back to those uh, that and and several other uh, agreements that have been made between the states. And of course, we have upper basin states and lower basin states. Uh, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, and New Mexico are the upper basin states. Arizona. Nevada and California are the lower basin states, and there's agreements about how much water needs to uh, flow from the upper basin states to the lower basin states. Utah uh, really has not had an authority or a commission like this that looked after our interests in the Colorado River, um, and and we have a lot uh, of unallocated water that we have not uh, we, uh, water that's allocated to Utah that we haven't developed yet. And um, because Utah's economy is not as mature as the economies of, say, Las Vegas or Southern California, uh, we, we have been holding that in reserve for, uh, for Utah as our economy does mature. And so we uh, set up this authority simply to protect our interests in the Colorado River. And the argument about the the closed meetings, uh, the only time that they're able to have closed meetings are when there's they're developing strategies about their negotiations on the Colorado River. And we feel like it could be damaging to Utah's interests if uh, our our strategy is is public, and that's why these meetings are uh, that that's why that one portion of the of the work that this authority will be doing, uh, can be done uh, in in uh, in something other than a public meeting where everyone would be aware of what they're doing. And as far as the officials on the uh, the people on the commission, uh, we wanted to have the very best people, the people that are most knowledgeable knowledgeable about the Colorado River and about the history of the Colorado River on this commission. And uh, ultimately, they they will answer to elected officials even though they themselves are not elected officials. So that's probably about the best answer I can give on that. All right. Uh, Senator Escamilla, your thoughts on the Colorado River Authority, Colorado River Commission? Um, um, yeah, so 
Yeah, I think more of it became a little bit of a partisan vote in this issue, and there were um, certain, several concerns. Some of them were mentioned before, so issues of transparency, accountability in terms of the membership, but also, um, you know, there's several. We, I guess, some of us were looking for maybe a little bit more clarity on the role of this commission. Um, there is still a lot of conversations about development and the pipeline in that area that not everyone necessarily agrees. I know my district feels a little bit different when we know, you know, Utah continues to be America's number one highest municipal water user in the United States and we're in the desert. Um, I want to see maybe more work done and be more proactive in looking to the future and the fact that we don't have a lot of water. We need to be more conscious of this. I understand that we need to be proactively working on our um, ability to uh, have our portion of the Colorado River, and I, I'm all for that, but a lot of those water projects that will be, um, you know, di- discussed through that process, uh, you know, the Bird River, Great Salt Lake, I mean, when you think about how we've reduced our ability to access water, and we're not being proactive on the other side. So I think there were multiple concerns um, in that sense. And, you know, I, I, I think our caucus would certainly raise a lot of red flags, and we all voted against it. So we, we, we will keep an eye on this. We, we want to make sure that we succeed so our, our children and our grandkids and our great-grandkids have access to water. I mean, that's the biggest concern. But uh, transparency and accountability, big red flags in this commission. Senator Miller, what's your what are your thoughts on this? I think that water is um, our most precious resource in Utah. Um, in terms of thinking about the state, and as you think about population growth and development of economic opportunity for people in the state, and we have to be um, we we've been as beneficiaries of. Um, people who've gone before and who've been thoughtful about things like building reservoirs um, that um, they were actually paying it forward, to use that term, um, as they built those reservoirs and that we're the beneficiaries of this to, of that today. And as we think about the Colorado River, about 60% of Utah's population um, relies on the Colorado River for drinking water. And we, um, and it's, it's probably the most reliable water uh, source in the Western United States. We're only using a portion of what was established as our share under the Colorado River uh, Compact. But we have to be much more proactive uh, for the future about planning uh, for our water infrastructure, for making sure we're going to be able to meet the future water needs of this state. And I think um, the Colorado River has to be one piece of that total package that we're looking at. And um, this allows us, I think, the capability to make sure over time that we preserve um, and protect um, our legal share of the Colorado River. I think that's important uh, to the future citizens of Utah. Uh, we're we're running out of time, and I uh, but I, I really wanted to bring up this issue. Um, so we have about four minutes. So I'll ask everybody to be very brief with their answer. Um, especially want to bring this up because uh, Representative Last is is right there in the middle of this. Um, so what am I talking about? You're wondering. Um, the potential name change for Dixie State University. This was addressed to the legislature. It wasn't mandated, but I guess uh, it wasn't uh, headed off by the legislature either. Uh, what are you hearing, Representative Last, from your constituents and from the community there at the university? This this must be a pretty emotional issue. Oh, yeah, it is. In fact, I'm sitting at Dixie State University right now. That's where I work full-time. So uh, it's definitely an emotional issue in the community, um, the way we ended up uh, from the legislative session is the this has been thrown back to the trustees of the university. Uh, they will put a committee together, and the committee will look at it and uh, come up with the best name for the university going forward. I guess it'll be uh, looked at. What, what's the uh, what I'm hearing is some students who brought this forward, um, you know, wanting this change. I guess there is probably some opposition as well. Uh, yeah, sure. There's opposition as well. I mean, obviously, this kind of change is is challenging. 
there are students who support this. Certainly the student leadership supports a name change. I'm sure there are students who don't support a name change. But this is something that we'll look at very carefully uh, and uh, we'll, again, try to come up with the, the best name and something that reflects the direction and mission of the university and the fact that it's now a larger university with regional and perhaps nationwide uh, recognition. Uh, Senator Escamilla, very briefly, what's your what, what's your take on this? Uh, you know, we uh, it, it's, so the process was created, and I think that's the win here for for the community, but also for the many students and alumni that still feel you know there is a connection between them and the university they attended. This is a statewide university, and as Representative Last just mentioned, you know, it certainly has implications beyond the the community, but also regional and, and nationally and internationally. So, you know, they do take also international students in there. So I, I think it's, um, I'm glad to see that a process was created. It was very engaging. I think I got more emails on that issue than any other issue mm. uh, in the middle of a pandemic, which is says a lot, but um, it engaged a good conversation. And those conversations are important. I mean, we're at a point where we need to have these conversations even if they're uncomfortable. So I, I applaud the community for engaging at that level. Yeah. About a minute left. Uh, so briefly, uh, Senator Miller, what's your take? So these are always emotional issues. Um, people who um, really believe that um, people want to change the name and people who want to keep the name. And uh, I do think what we've put in place is a process. It takes it back to the governance system of uh, the institution and then back to uh uh, the State Board for Higher Education in the state of Utah, and then a report back to the legislature. And I think that will allow the engagement and involvement in the process, which is um, extremely important. And I believe that um, the governing bodies will um, think through this in ways that make sure that we're providing the best stewardship we can for the institution and for the alumni and the graduates of the institution um, and what's going to best serve uh, both the profile and the national, uh, as this institution continues to grow, the national profile of this institution as well as the future of our um, graduates and alumni. We'll reach the end of our uh, time. Much more we could talk about. We, we do very much appreciate our legislators for taking the time to be with us. Uh, Representative Brad Last, Republican from Hurricane, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been nice to be with you. Good good to have you with us. Uh, Senator Luce Escamilla, uh, Democrat from Salt Lake City, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And Senator Ann Milner, Republican from Ogden, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And thanks for our listeners for uh, uh, getting your questions, comments to us. Appreciate uh, those. Keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. And thanks for listening today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.